Recovery Elevator, episode 247. I suggest replacing the word failure or relapse with feedback. Mm. You are getting feedback from the universe telling you what is working and what is not. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Jody. She's 30 years old, lives in Orlando, Florida, and took her last drink on October 20th, 2015. In her interview, she talks about her decision to be fully loud and proud on social media about quitting drinking and the responses that she got. It's a great interview. You guys are going to love it. Join a recovery elevator for an alcohol-free trip to Thailand and Cambodia this January 20th to the 31st, 2020, or when it's freezing in North America. On this 12-day trip, we fly into Bangkok, check out this incredible city, and then head north to the jungles of Thailand, where we will be visiting a place called Elephant World and a beautiful national park. We then make our way into Cambodia, where we check out Angkor Wat and some of the world's most impressive archaeological sites. This trip is going to be fun. We've got powerful recovery workshops built in the itinerary, and you're going to meet others who prioritize exploring and seeing sights over drinking. Go to recoveryelevator.com for the full itinerary and details, and space is limited. So right now, it is November 11th. You've still got plenty of time to make this trip happen. Okay, let's get started. Are you ready? I know I am. Here we go. I came across an article on theinverse.com, and the link will be in the show notes, episode 247, on the RE website or in your podcast media player. And thank you, Carrie Mack, for doing such an awesome job with the episode summaries. You know what? That reminds me. Let me give listeners a quick rundown on how an episode comes together and give a shout out to the team because there's a lot of steps. Okay, here we go. Paul, and yeah, let's go Seinfeld third person here. Paul thinks of a topic, comes across a topic, is personally working through something he wants to share with the audience, and then does anywhere from two to three to four to five to six to seven, eight hours of research. Actually, let's back that up a bit even more. Paul had to drink at least 10,000 liters of beer, 3,000 bottles of wine, 8,500 mixed drinks, and 243 sea breezes to get firsthand experience of what addiction looks like uh, in order to have the firsthand information to cover these topics. Okay, so step one, Paul records the episode. Step two, Paul records interview with brave, courageous sobriety rock star who shares their story knowing it will help others. Step three... Ty then edits the podcast episode at the RE office here in Bozeman, Montana, or at home via Dropbox, and she makes Paul sound like he knows what he's talking about. She has done this for nearly 200 consecutive weeks. Thank you, Ty. A huge thank you. Step four, so then Carrie, Ari's full-time staff member, then puts the episode together in one long MP3 file. She adds the intro and outro music takes the individual MP3 files, my part, the interviewee, matches the volume levels, and creates the episode in one long MP3 format. Step five, Carrie Mack, who does show notes, then listens to the episodes and creates the summaries and then uploads them to Dropbox. Step six, Paul then adds sponsorship reads and uploads the podcast to the podcast hosting service called Libsyn and the RE website, where the episode drops the following Monday morning at 5 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. 
And here's a pro tip. Uh, the episode drops about an hour early on the RE website. So about 4 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Cool thing about technology, it's all pre-scheduled. I'm not waking up at 3.30 in the morning on Monday morning to do this. Okay, step seven, which is the most important step of all, you listen. Seriously, without you, the listener, RE ends right around episode 30 or 40. Step eight, wait, there's more steps. <laughs> the listener then connects with RE. Step nine, more listeners connect and share their struggles and successes with alcohol. Step 10, we start a community called Cafe RE. Step 11, in-person meetups, retreats, RE live events, sober travel trips. Step 12, ditch the booze, connect the heart and soul, trust that Earth, Venus, Mars, the Milky Way have your back, and realize this isn't a no to alcohol, but a hell yes to a better life. And all of this has been happening now for a couple hundred consecutive weeks. Holy buckets. So let me check real quick. How many steps is that? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Huh. The 12 steps of RE. Well, that's a coincidence. <laughs> I'm just joking. We need to have fun with this, guys. Okay, here we go. Let's get started. Let's cover the article that I came across. It talks about how the relationship between alcohol and antisocial behavior is well documented, both anecdotally and in research. And again, there's a link to this article in the show notes. So plenty of arguments and fights stem from someone having one or ten too many. Scientists believe we behave like this when drunk because we misinterpret social situations and lose our sense of empathy. In essence, once we start slurring our words and stumbling, our ability to understand or share the emotions of others flies right out the door. In a recent experiment, participants were given shots of vodka and then measured their empathy and their moral decisions. They were presented images showing various people expressing emotions to participants. After drinking more alcohol, people began to respond inappropriately to these emotional displays, reporting that they felt positively about sad faces and negatively about happy faces. The more intoxicated people were, the more impaired their empathy became. Having a few drinks weakened people's abilities to understand and share the emotion of others. Okay, this is an easy one. Addiction is many things, but primarily a lack of connection or disconnection, and this is where it can get ugly. Not only does an addiction take hold when we have a lack of connection, when we're blitzed, our ability to connect in social situations with others, build altruistic relationships, are heavily restricted. We're unable to interpret social cues, the unspoken word, and oftentimes the words that are spoken. Now here's where the study gets more interesting. As the rapper T-Pain says, just blame it on the alcohol, and I'm not even going to try to say it the way he does. So can we blame our bad behavior on alcohol? For example, we're an ass to our friend while drunk and the next day we say, oh gosh, I'm sorry, but it was the alcohol. Or as Shaggy would say, it wasn't me. Okay, that's the last song title reference, I promise. So is blaming it on the alcohol a legitimate get out of jail free card? Well, the study says no. In the study, people reported what they thought they would do in moral dilemmas and then also looked at what they actually did in a simulation of a moral dilemma in virtual reality. Consider what you might do in one of these situations. Okay, a runaway trolley is heading down some rail tracks toward five construction workers who can't hear it approaching. You're standing on a footbridge in between the approaching trolley and the workers. In front of you is standing a very large stranger. If you push this large stranger onto the tracks below, their large bulk will stop the trolley. 
This one person will be killed, but the five construction workers will be saved. Would you do it? While alcohol might have impaired the empathy of participants, it didn't have an effect on how they judged these moral situations or how they acted in them. If someone chose to push the person off the footbridge in order to save more lives while sober, they did the same thing when drunk. If people refused to sacrifice the person's life in the same situation because they believed that killing was wrong regardless of the consequences, they also did the same when drunk. It turns out that while we might believe that alcohol changes our personalities, the study shows it doesn't. You're still the same person after a drink. Your existing sense of morality is left intact. So while alcohol might affect how we interpret and understand the emotions of other people, we can't blame our immoral behaviors on alcohol. Drunken you has the same moral compass. And so you are responsible for your moral and immoral actions, whether you've had a few drinks or not. So what are your thoughts on this? After the interview with Jody, I'll give a couple of my own concluding thoughts on this study. And before we hear from Jody, let's hear from my favorite resource, Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups Cafe RE, you're gonna get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Jody, how are you? Hi, Paul. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, Jody. Thank you so much for joining us. I cannot wait to share your incredible, powerful story with the audience and how you, and how you have decided to completely shred the shame publicly on social media, on Instagram. I know right there, a lot of listeners were like, "What? What is she doing?" <laughs> And we're going to talk yes. about how that's actually the best thing we can do is be loud and proud. We need to take it slow, need to go slow with it, but eventually opening up with others, especially on those platforms like social media, Facebook, Instagram is so empowering for the individual. And it also has the power to save a life. But before we get into that, Jody, when was your last drink? My last drink was on October 20th of 2015. Wow. So four years almost in the bag. How does it feel? It feels incredible. I can't even believe it's almost been four years. I kind of lose track of time. Last year, I almost forgot that it was my sobriety birthday. <laughs> Isn't that cool how that goes? Because there was a time when like staying away from alcohol for a day would have been uh, the biggest accomplishment of my life. And, and sometimes it's like, wow, six months went by, a year went by, two years went by. How does that feel? It's amazing. It's just, it's so nice to know that alcohol isn't something that I even have to think about or deal with on a daily basis. Like I've cleared the path and it's not there. And so I can just keep moving forward. I love it. And yes. give listeners a little background about yourself, Jody, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family and what do you like to do for fun? 
Yeah. So I'm 30 and I live in Orlando, Florida now. I am a flight attendant and I am also a mindset and transformation coach. I am not married. I don't have kids yet. And I love to travel, cook, read, do yoga. So I love to do for fun. So I follow you on Instagram and you're always mm-hmm. traveling around the world. Where, where have you mm-hmm. been recently or do you have any fun trips planned? Yeah, I'm going to um, Greece with my boyfriend in a couple months. And last year I went to Bali for almost a month. It was incredible. The energy there is amazing. What is Bali like? First of all, the people there are so kind-hearted. Their food is super, super healthy. Like you can get a fresh juice for like 50 cents. There's a lot of yoga. I didn't actually do any yoga while I was there, but the beaches are beautiful. If you like to snorkel and scuba dive, you can do that. You feel like very centered and, and grounded there. It's just a really beautiful experience. Bali keeps showing up on my radar, Jody. So I think either before or after the Recovery Elevator Asia trip, or we're going to Thailand and Cambodia. I think I'm going to make a stop in Bali. You totally should. You will love it. And it's, it's so nice because it's affordable. Like You don't have to break the bank to go there. Yeah. I love it. Well, Jody, give listeners background with your drinking. When did you start? Mm -hmm. How much did you drink? Did you ever attempt to moderate? Were there rock bottom moments? Get us up Mm -hmm. to speed. I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. Um, So I was introduced to alcohol my freshman year of college. So uh, I was 17 at the time. So this was about 2006. And I went into college with the mindset that um, college was about getting an education and also having a lot of fun and partying. So I knew that was like an important piece to this. And I was very much under the impression that if you wanted to party and have a good time, like this was the time. So it was kind of like a rite of passage. And I found that alcohol really helped my social anxiety. I've always been kind of a shy person. Like even to this day, I'm not really someone that will initiate like becoming friends with someone or hanging out with someone for the first time just because I get really nervous. And so I've gotten better. But like at the time, that was that gave me a lot of anxiety. Like I didn't really know a lot of people. And so knowing that I was going to parties and alcohol was going to be there and it was going to kind of take the edge off that really helped me. It was like a tool for me. And I unknowingly, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but that just played a very crucial part in my life, alcohol and and using it in that way. So yeah, I continued to drink and it was very socially acceptable. I also was really, really heavy into smoking weed. Like that was kind of like my first love over alcohol. And I remember there was a small voice inside of me, like the last year that I was there that said, if you don't change something now, you're really going to be screwing yourself over later. And I think what scared me was giving it up and having my relationship with it change. When was the first time that voice showed up? I would say my last year of college. So I did a victory lap. So five years. Um, So when I was, I think I was 22 at the time. Gotcha. So the voice shows up and says, if we don't make a change, we might be headed down a bad path. Did you Mm -hmm. listen to the voice? I kind of did. I went to a therapist and I wasn't honest with him. And I know this is something that you tell your listeners, be very honest. I wasn't honest with him at all. And I made like my smoking habit, which was really an addiction, like so small and insignificant. So he's like, I don't even know why you're here. But it was, it was very, very painful for me. Sure. 
Sure. Yeah. And there is an unspoken rule. I've had a therapist on this podcast where pretty much all doctors, mental health professionals, whatever you tell them how much you drink. So even if you're not honest, there's like this formula where they're, they're going to add three to six drinks on top of that anyway. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. So then it was time for me to graduate college and I was very much under the impression still that whatever happened in college would stay in college. So I crossed that stage of graduation and I, I just, I thought that I was going to walk through this magical blur and I was going to like morph into this young professional and I was going to stop binge drinking. I was going to stop smoking weed all the time because that's college. This is not my professional life. That didn't happen. I was so, so wrong and I continued to smoke weed all of the time. It made my anxiety so much worse. Whenever I drank socially, I would brown out or black out. Just nothing changed. It was, it was so frustrating to me. Can you talk a little bit more about that frustration? Because I've done the geographical cures where I'm thinking my, my drinking is going to stay in Spain and then it comes with me and it's mm -hmm. frustrating. It's like, what is going on? Can you, can you dive deeper in like a specific scenario where you were wondering like, look, college is done, but why is this phase still with me? Yeah. So I think, and it, that, that was it. I, I moved back home. And so I thought everything was going to be different there. And just that that addiction piece, which I didn't really realize was there at the time, it follows you. It's within you. It, it will help you find people that make you feel normal too. And so, and it will put you in situations and allow you to put yourself in situations that make you think that whatever you're doing is okay. So it will just continue. It really will. Jody, I love how you said the addiction is within you. Listeners, you might have heard the tagline change in the last 40 or 50 episodes here is that it all starts from the inside out. And we initially, we look to change our external substance, people, places, location, things, etc. And we're baffled when everything has changed, yet the addiction is still there. In your case, you move back home and the addiction mm -hmm. is inside you. So therefore, the answer away from the addiction also lies inside you. Big value bomb dropped by uh, by Jody at eight minutes in. Nice job. Okay, <laughs> keep going. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I mean that in the sense of like it's it's really about like your mindset. So a lot of people try and change their results and their actions, but they're not understanding why they keep thinking the same or why the same why they're not getting the actions or results that they want. Really, it all starts within you, within your conscious mind, your subconscious mind, and so you have to really start rewiring your brain. And I didn't understand that. But yeah, so anyway, I decided to become a flight attendant and I, cause I love to travel. And so I knew that they drug tested the department of transportation drug tests. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Like, I'm not going to have to go to rehab. Like, this is going to be great. Like, this is something that I really want. And so I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that I stop smoking all the time so that I can get this job. And so sure enough, I did. I had my eye on the prize. I don't know how I did it, but I wanted this bad enough. And I eventually applied and I got the job. I start my job as a flight attendant. And when you start out, you start on reserve. And so that means that you're on call. And so um, scheduling will say, okay, you're on call from 3 a.m. to 3 p.m. Sometimes they won't call you, but you have to be available because when they call, you have to be at the airport within two hours. So I was at home a lot by myself, not getting called. And it's similar to like being on house arrest, like you just can't go anywhere. When you're used to being in an altered state of mind for like seven years of your life, and suddenly you're sitting there in an apartment and you're sober, it's terrifying. 
because I didn't have any hobbies. I didn't have really any like coping tools. Like I didn't know who I was yet. I spent so many years of my life numbing any like ability to really like grow and create this person that I wanted to be. And so here I am in this apartment in San Francisco and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. It was really scary. And the drinking like continued, not really at work. Work was kind of like my safe place, although alcohol abuse is very common in aviation. So I started to drink alone. It was isolated drinking because I noticed that when I was drinking in public, I couldn't control my drinking. I couldn't moderate. And I was continuing to black out and brown out. And so that just became really embarrassing for me. I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. And so for anyone to see me other than quote unquote perfect, it's, I can't handle that. You know, I couldn't handle that at the time. And so I was like, well, I guess I lost my privilege to drink in public. So I'm drinking alone at home. But you know, I take responsibility for that. At the same time, I think a really important piece is that our society allows us to believe that's okay because it will tell you have a glass of wine after work when you're stressed, when you're sad, it's used to cheer you up. And so I was like, okay, like I hear these messages everywhere. So this must be okay. And alcohol is addictive. And so the addiction just kicked in even more. And so one bottle turned into two turned into all right, I feel like wine's kind of making me fat. So I've got to drink the clear liquors. And so I went to vodka and it became very, very lonely and isolating. I'm loving it, Jody. You're doing such a great job getting us up to speed here. So you're in your mid twenties, you're in an yeah. apartment without your, your, some of your, your core coping mechanisms. It's lonely. And then you mentioned alcoholism is rampant in aviation. That might be a surprise to people, but it is. And I've covered this in a podcast topic where they have the HIMS program. It's H-I-M-S, which is an mm-hmm. 80% rehabilitation program for pilots. But even yes. with, 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 the, with the, the staff on the airplane, there's layovers and it's, it's just like a party, right? It can be. Yeah. Um, and there's also with flight attendants, I'm, I'm involved in this program. I volunteer for the union and we have a program called FADAP. So it's flight attendants. Oh, I'm going to have to get back to you. On the, that's okay. The Let's go with the acronym FADAP. Yeah, FADAP. And so that's basically where we get uh, help for flight attendants who are experiencing addiction. And, and so we part can of put this them program. Yeah. Wow. So I just actually went to their annual conference last week. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. get it, get us up to speed, Jody. Where mm-hmm. when did this voice inside that you had at the end of college? When did that voice get loud enough to to the point where you start making changes? Perhaps you start moderating. Did you put any rules into place? When did you first quit? Was there a rock bottom moment? Yeah. So the isolated drinking basically made me start to question things, and that voice got louder. And so I tried to moderate. I tried to make rules around my drinking, and I would break those rules every time. The voice got really, really loud when I remember like firmly believing like the world would be a better place without me, that my problem was too big and that no one would want to hear it or handle it, which is crazy because I have the most loving and supportive family and group of friends, but that's what this will do to you. It will tell you things that are untrue and just and absolutely devastating. And so I started actually listening to your podcast and in that moment of wanting nothing more than to die. And it started really helping me. And I continued to drink that summer. I eventually saw a therapist. And at the time, I finally admitted to her. So this is when I was 27. So September of 2015. And I identified at the time with an, as an alcoholic. I don't use that word anymore. 
And the funny thing is, I knew from your podcast that if I tried to moderate or make myself a normal drinker, that I would fail, that it's just, it's not possible, it's too late. But I told her, I said, so, so I know I have a problem with drinking and I need to stop, but I just have to try one more thing and I'll see you next week and I'll be ready. I'm gonna try and make myself a normal drinker, I know I'm gonna fail, and sure enough, I did. What, what, what was this brilliant rule that you told your therapist? I got one more rule in the bag and I know this one's gonna work. I, I just, I was like, I'm going to try and moderate. I'm going to try and become a normal drinker because now I know I'm admitting that I have a problem. Okay. So I'm going to try and go back and correct it. Sure. And I'm going to try and like make it not a problem anymore. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. R- real quick, you mentioned you don't use the word alcoholic anymore. And I've had three podcasts about how I've broken up with the word alcoholic. Tell me what your thinking is behind that. Oh my gosh. I feel very passionately about this. I think it's a very dangerous and harmful term to use. And I really learned this from Holly Whitaker, who does The Tempest. And she talks about how we put people, it keeps people sick for longer, basically, because they don't want to become, they don't want to be an alcoholic. And so they'll make all of these excuses around um, like why they are not that. And so it puts people, kind of put my own spin on it. And, and I believe that it puts people in this box of so like the alcoholic box. And then there's the safe box. And so we have people who think that they're quote unquote normal drinkers and they're in the safe box and they're okay until things really spiral out of control. And I think it also forces people to identify with an experience and not who they are. And that doesn't define you. You're so much more than that. Jody, I cover pretty much what you just said in my book, Alcohol is Shit, where 5% of people fall into the stereotype of what society thinks an alcoholic is. And nobody wants to reach that moment. So like you said, it perpetuates the sickness. It makes it go longer than it needs to happen. And Mm -hmm. I'm not so on board with words like sober curious, but hey, what the hell? Like if it allows people to explore life without alcohol way before reaching the term alcoholic, then good for them. I love how you said that. Keep going. Um, And I wonder, you know, I wish I could go back in time and, you know, and I would encourage people who, who think that they may have a problem or identify as an alcoholic. Like you said, it's only five, 10% of people, whatever the actual percentage is. But what if, what if we said, I'm experiencing addiction to alcohol? I feel like that's very powerful in itself. No one wants to experience addiction. And so Holly also says addiction is an experience. It's not an identity. So why don't we say that instead of putting people, putting this label on people? It just feels so oppressive. I feel like every time I went into meetings, I felt like I was beating myself over the head with a bat saying, I'm an alcoholic. I'm what? No, I'm Jody. And I've experienced addiction. And that's who that's I'm Jody. And that's part of my experience. And that's that. I love it. (laughs) Totally agree with you on that one, Jody. Addiction is a representation of a part of my subpersonality that needs extra special healing and attention. I mean, that that's it. An addiction is a messenger. It's a signpost. That's it. Of course, if I go to 12-step meetings out of respect for the program, I'll use the word alcoholic, but yeah. And, and you can follow my trajectory as well for the first 100 episodes. I'm like, hey, I'm Paul. I'm an alcoholic. And as mm-hmm. I went further, I was like, okay, I'd, I'd like to soften the rhetoric around this because my subconscious already has a predefined role of what an alcoholic looks like, and that's the 5% that actually live under a bridge, the brown paper bag, et cetera. Um, 95% of um, this air quotes right now, alcoholics don't look anything like what society has put in that box. Just like you Mm -hmm. said. Okay. So bring us up to speed to the moment before October 20th. Is it 20th or 26th? I can't read my own handwriting. Uh, The 20th. 20th. 
Suzero. There we go. Get us up to speed. Yeah. Yeah. So I just decided, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Nothing, nothing is changing. And it's getting me further and further away from the person that I want to be in the life that I want to live. I felt like I, if I, if there was anything that I wanted to do with my life, if I had like goals and dreams, which I couldn't even really define those at the time, if alcohol was a part of the picture, I was never going to get there. And I was just, I guess, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Gotcha. And once you reach that realization at the conscious and the subconscious level, that's when a beautiful thing happens. The body, the mind, the spirit, both the conscious and the, and the subconscious mind start working in a collaborative effort. And what happened after that? So I pretty much did it on my own, but not really because I had your podcast that was very supportive. I saw a therapist and I just, I kind of took it one day at a time. Like those first three days are really a blur and I kind of made a routine for myself. Like I would go to a workout class and I went grocery shopping every day because I would plan out like what I was going to make for dinner for me and my family. And that kind of like structured my day. You know, I would go to the grocery store and then maybe I'd go for a walk and then I'd chop the vegetables and I'd do something else. And then I'd make dinner and like somehow like the day was over, but it just, it helped me to stay sober and stay grounded and do something that I enjoyed. And that's just kind of what I remember for the first couple of months. In the first couple of months, did you experience cravings and how did you get past them? You know, I really made a firm decision. Like I, I don't want any part of this lifestyle with alcohol anymore. And I was ready. I was really, really ready. And so I didn't really experience a lot of cravings. I remember Thanksgiving rolled around and I remember having a thought about drinking that day. And I was like, I can't do this. Like it's been, it's been over a month. Like I'm not going to go back there. And just somehow, like I would put days and weeks together. And I remember telling my brother and he was like such a big cheerleader for me. And I didn't really tell anybody though. I wasn't, I wasn't ready. Yeah. That was pretty much my first couple months. And Jody, we're recording this on August 28th and this comes out, I think November 11th. And uh, so you don't quite have four years in the bag, but I think you're going to get there. I'm pretty confident on that. Can you walk us through the first four years, like year one, two, three, four, and talk about the biggest lessons or maybe like a defining lesson or a light bulb moment in each year and how it changed and how it's evolved? Yeah, I would say the first year I remember trying AA about like six months into my recovery journey because I thought it was just something that I had to do. It was kind of like part of this idea of not drinking. And that kind of helped me a little bit. It like helped me also structure my days. But it also, I think like listening to your podcast and just connecting with people on Facebook and Cafe RE really helped me to to branch out and be like loud and proud of just, I don't know where this came from, but like I've just I've never really had any shame behind it. And I slowly kind of discovered or started to create who I wanted to be. I remember reading this quote at the beginning of recovery that said, life isn't about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. And that really resonated with me because I was like, what am I finding? Like I started drinking when I was 17. Like I was still, I mean, that was shortly after high school. You're so lost in high school. Like what is there to find? you know, it's, it's, it's all about creating who you want to be. And I feel like that's such an empowering mindset to have around your life. And I really was my first year, I was really, really dedicated to loving myself and really trying to figure out like, how the heck do people love themselves? Like, I would just ask people, I'm like, 
do you love yourself? Like, yeah. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, how? Like, what does that feel like to you? And at the end of that first year, I really started to have more compassion and empathy. And I realized I don't need anybody in my life. I need myself. And there's a difference between needing and wanting. I want people in my life. I want to to create moments and celebrate with people. But that was part of the self-love piece of that is like, I needed myself because at the end of the day, if everyone disappeared, like it would be me and I have to be okay and support and love myself. So that was year one. And then yeah, year two, three, four, it was more about um, like understanding what had happened in addiction about a year and a half into sobriety. I found Annie Grace's work, which completely changed my way of thinking about my recovery. And it was all about mindset and it, it changed my world. It changed the way that I viewed what had happened and the way that we see alcohol in our society. It actually made me leave AA. I couldn't go anymore. It actually made me more upset to be at the meetings because it just wasn't in line with what she was teaching. What she taught me was resonated to my core. So, I've yet to meet someone who's been successful on this journey who has not addressed the issue of self-loathing. So I absolutely love how you said that. And Jody, thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, I'm honored to be part of your journey. And I, I remember when you were in Cafe RE and people graduate from Cafe RE all the time. Uh, I love getting cancellation requests. I know it sounds strange, but people say, Hey, I'm in a great spot. I I'm just ready for the next stage of my journey. Fantastic. A couple of years pass. And I get an email from you a couple of weeks ago about coming on the podcast. I'm like, wow, yes, absolutely. Let's do this. And it's just been so special to see your journey evolve. And now, um, before I hit record, you are a mindset and transformational coach. Talk to me about mm-hmm. this. This is so exciting. Yeah. So um, I decided about a year ago that I wanted to get into coaching because I really, I love to connect with people who are living alcohol-free. I feel like this is my purpose is to help people because I, I understand what that journey is like. And I don't think that people deserve to to suffer through this. And it's such a bold and brave decision to do this. And we you talk about this a lot too. There's this stigma and there's this shame around this. And there's nothing to be ashamed about. I don't think that this is our fault. You know, we're in a very alcohol centric society and alcohol is addictive. And so this happens. And so I want to be able to help and support people in this journey. And um, like I said, following Annie Grace's work, you know, she focuses on a lot about your beliefs and mindset. And so I got more into learning about mindset and neuro-linguistic programming and being able to be the creator of my reality and something that I've always felt. And I, I don't know why, and I'm starting to understand why, is that I've been loud and proud about this. And I want other people to feel that way too. There's there's nothing to be ashamed about. And so I support and guide them through this process of rewiring their brain so that they feel really empowered and confident around this decision to live alcohol-free because there shouldn't be any shame there. There's no reason to be. Of course, we need to work on the trauma and that's the job of the therapist, but I meet them where they're at and we move forward. What are some ways, some strategies and techniques to rewire the brain? Yeah, so I think it's really important to learn about alcohol and how it affects your brain, um, how we are influenced by society and identifying your beliefs behind your drinking. I, I believe that we do things in our life, regardless of what it is, because we believe that it's beneficial to us. And so you have to rewire your thoughts. Like once you learn that 
alcohol has no place in your life and you create these new beliefs around it, you start to rewire the way that your brain thinks and the way that it sees alcohol and and addiction. And so I think another really important piece is naming your addiction and being able to, I know you have Gary, right? What's your your addiction's name? Yeah, you got it. Gary. (gasps) Yeah. Um, My addiction is Dirty Judy. Someone gave me that name when I was drinking and I was like, I was like, okay, sure. That's, that's great. Yeah. And being able to, I, I think when people experience a craving for alcohol or they think about drinking. And I I like to use the example of going to weddings. So I go to a wedding about once a year and going to weddings is not something that I practice on a regular basis. It's a, it's a annual thing. And so whenever I go, I have, I have this thought about drinking and I look at the Chardonnay that's in the glass and I'm like, Oh, that looks kind of nice. And I, I wish that could be me. And then I'm like, Whoa, what is this about? Like, I'm almost four years sober. Like, no. And then I remember that that is an old belief that is creeping in. That is the belief and the mindset of dirty Judy. That's not Jody. And so I, I have to take a moment and I have to recognize that I don't freak out. I don't say, I'm, oh my God, I'm going to relapse. I, I have to go to a meeting. I have to call my sponsor. It's let's, let's sit with it. Let's rewire the thoughts. Who is showing up right now? It's the voice of your addiction. And I do this visualization exercise where I, I visualize her like leaving my body and her body getting smaller and smaller and smaller until she disappears. And sometimes you have to tell them to get the F away because it's really loud. I fully agree with that. And, and this is kind of the, like the, the untethered soul, Michael Singer type stuff, where a great way mm-hmm. to rewire the brain is to recognize you are not the voice inside the head. You're the one who hears it. Um, and f- before, when Gary would talk, I would fully identify with that voice. It's like, whoa, I need a drink. I need to do this and say this was me. Now you take one step back and you hear that addictive voice talking. It's convincing. I get it because it's lying to you in your own voice. But you can step back mm-hmm. and you're listening to it. Um, you're listening to it instead of like you're the one that's saying it. And and sometimes, like you said, you have to say, get the F out. I'm not doing this. Like foul yeah. language and harsh language can be of your assistance when getting Gary outside of the head. Um, I, I love you said that. Um, yeah. Now yeah. you are loud and proud on social media. First off, tell listeners how they can mm-hmm. find you on Instagram. Um, but second off, what's the response that you get? I know a lot of people when they think about posting on Facebook that they, they hit a sobriety milestone is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can, uh, my handle is T total creator, um, or you can just type in Jody Venture. It's Jody with a Y and that's T E E T O T A L dot creator. So being loud and proud, it's, it's never about me posting on Instagram, my program teetotal creator. This, this is not about me. This is about the people who need to hear the message. The people that felt like I did and, and want to die and want to escape and are ashamed and they're scared. And it's about sharing your story when you're ready to, to help that person that needs to hear it and needs to hear that message. Because if this work is about us, we're going to get in our own way. And so it's, it's of being of service and being of support and love to other people. And I get a very great response from it. Jody, as a mindset and transformation coach, as you're working with clients, what are some of the common pitfalls that you're seeing people bump up against? Um, yeah, I would say they, 
they're really stuck in in this shame and this stigma behind addiction and living sober. People think that it's going to be boring. They think that it's like a punishment or a consequence to their actions when really it's a gift in itself. It's people also see relapse as failure. I suggest replacing the word failure or relapse with feedback. Mm. You are getting feedback from the universe telling you what is working and what is not. When you relapse, think of it as, so you didn't fail, you didn't relapse, you're getting feedback. The universe is telling you whatever you were doing or whatever state of mind or whatever the situation was, it didn't work for you. And so we have to try something different. And that keeps people from from coming down really hard on themselves. And, and addiction, that is also feedback. You are learning and you are understanding that using a substance to cope with your life is not working for you. You didn't fail. The universe just gave you a message telling you what was going to work for you for the highest good and what is not. I love that. And in my book, I use the word field research. And I, I totally agree with that. It's simply mm-hmm. going out and getting more lessons and just learning more about that. And it's, it's, it's a part of our personality that we used to, to heal or to help with, and we did it self, self-medicating with alcohol and we reach a point where it no longer works. We don't need to beat ourselves up. It worked for a while and it doesn't work anymore. And sometimes there's additional mm-hmm. field research needed, uh, to kind of give mm-hmm. the added encouragement and support to, to move forward in life without the alcohol. Now, Jody, yeah. there is no top of the mountain and this is a good thing. In year four to five, or what are you what are you currently working on right now personally? I am working on um well really like my business as a coach. I'm also working on just tuning in to what feels good to me and what doesn't, like getting out of the people pleasing and trying to fit into this box of perfection and really owning how I feel about things and who I am and and being being true to who I am, like letting go of the the people pleasing piece. Comment on letting go. So a lot of this journey is not about accumulating anything; it's about letting go. Have you experienced the same? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say like letting go of control and kind of just being able to. I feel that we have control over our life, but sometimes you just have to let go. Sometimes you have to rely on the faith of the universe or whatever your higher power is, if, if you believe in that, to guide you and to know that everything is going to work out just the way that it's supposed to and to be patient with the process. My favorite analogy for wanting to control and be perfect is think of yourself being at the beach and you pick up uh, a ball of sand, okay, and you have it in your hand and you're squeezing that ball of sand really, 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 really hard. Well, what's going to happen it's going to fall through your fingers and you're going to lose it all. And so it's, it's just being able to go with the flow of life and, and just rely on, on faith. You mentioned higher power earlier. Where are you with that? And do you believe it's necessary or important to have a higher power on this journey? I have definitely become a very spiritual person over the last couple of years. Um, I meditate every morning and I call in the guides that I want to work with, the universe, God. I feel that being able to allow something greater than me to support me in life, it just, I feel so much more grounded and, and supported. And I don't think it's something that you have to do, but I, it's not going to hurt you. It's really not. I love it. And before we hit the rapid fire round, 
um, and Carrie Mack, who does the show notes, are go- is going to write this down. But how can people find out where to locate you on Instagram or your website and, and perhaps if they want to get in touch with you about mindset transformation coaching? Uh huh. Yeah. So my um, my Instagram handle is T Total Creator. So that's T E E T O T A L dot Creator. Um, or you can just type in Jody Ventura, J O D Y, and Ventura like Ace Ventura. I'll make it easy for you. <laughs> You'll find me. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Rapid fire round. Are you ready? Yes. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? Light bulb moment. I would say realizing that I am I am not my addiction. I'm not what I have experienced. What is a gift sobriety has given you? I would say being present, being fully present at all times. What's your favorite non-alcoholic drink? Ooh, um, I've gotten really into mocktails recently. It's fun to order them at restaurants. Uh, recently, I had a alcohol-free spicy jalapeno margarita. Oh, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. It's delicious. And what are some of your favorite resources? Let's see. Annie Grace's The Snake in Mind. Um, I love Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Quit Drinking for Women. I love Holly Whitaker, uh, The Tempest. I love your podcast and really anyone that is loud and proud on Instagram. Instagram is a great tool. What's on your bucket list, Jody, in an alcohol-free life? Um, I want to help as many people as I can through coaching and to support and guide women. Um, and maybe I'll branch out to um, to everyone eventually. I would love to continue to travel the world and just continue to stay true and in line to what feels good to me and what feels true. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? I would say that small voice that I talked about that had told me like something's not right here. I encourage really anyone who drinks, I would say, even people who don't think that they have a problem. So this goes for everybody. Be open to be open. And I would say committed to taking note of how alcohol affects you or why you drink. Just stay curious and, and, and wonder, stay, just wonder and, and be curious about it. There's nothing wrong with that, wondering something or being curious about something. Once you move on to like the noticing, start documenting like how it's making you feel or like why you're drinking. Then ask yourself the big question, not necessarily am I an alcoholic or do I have a problem, but is this getting in the way of me becoming the, the person that I want to be? And just commit to that. It's a non-combative way of, of approaching it. And it's, it's just a soft way and it, it allows you to create so much compassion and empathy for yourself. And it's not as scary thinking of it that way. You're just noticing, you're just collecting data. Non-combative. I love how you said that. Mm-hmm. And before we depart, Jody, give listeners your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line. Okay. If you use the um, layering technique in your recycling bin, so this is what I used to do. I would take newspaper or like just something soft and I would put it at the bottom of the recycling bin and then I would carefully put the bottles in there. But you have to be careful because they can't cling together so it makes noise because you don't want anyone to know what you're doing. And then you put another layer on top of like newspaper or whatever it is and then it's not there. And if your recycling bin is full, then some you go to a gas station and you use 
their bin for your bottles. God, we are so <laughs> resourceful. I love it. I know. We're so creative. So creative. Jody. thank you so much for reconnecting. And thanks for being part of my journey. I'm honored to be part of your journey. Thanks for listening. Fantastic job. Thank you. Thank you. It's so fun. This has just come full circle. So I'm so, so happy and grateful to be able to share my story. And thank you for everything that you've helped me with. I don't know where I would be without your podcast. Oh, thanks for being part of it. Thank you, Jody. In the book, Alcohol is Shit, there's an important line. In fact, before the line, it even says, this might be the most important line in the book. And that is, addictions are no more than signposts in life. So alcohol or an addiction will exacerbate or bring to the surface these sub parts of the personality in deepest need of healing. Whether it's devious behavior, jealousy, a short fuse or temper, emotional outbursts, sexual infidelity, violent actions upon others, which are the ultimate display of control issues, etc. Well, alcohol will bring these to the surface. So here's my view. Thank you, alcohol, for shining the light on what needs to be addressed and what needs acute healing in this very moment. Recovery Elevator, alcohol is shit, and we both know it. I love you guys. <laughs>